Good evening, I'm Jennifer, and I'm an alcoholic. Ooh. Give me a minute. My sobriety date's January 12th of 1992. Um, I have a sponsor, and I actively sponsor women. Um, can I say my home group? My home group's the mid-home group in Wilmington, North Carolina. <clears throat> um, I would not be sober today if it weren't for those three things. Had to get a sobriety date first. It's not a requirement for membership, but it does help, right? Um, in my home group is a group of people. A lot of times I hear, at least in the United States, people say things like, I have the best home group in the whole world. I do not say that. Sometimes I don't even like the people that are in that meeting. Um, but those people save my life on a regular basis. And it's because I'm there every week. Day in, day out, they see me. And when I walk into that meeting and my eyes aren't right, they know. And they say, are you okay? That's what I needed in my life. It gives me the opportunity to be of service <clears throat> by being active in a home group. And my sponsor is, um, she's been with me. Oh, we've been together a long time. And I've had a lot of different sponsors as well. And those women give of their time freely to me. I was a train wreck when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, they took time out of their lives when they could have been with their children, when they could have been doing other things, they took time to be with me. Um, I have the privilege today of doing that with other women. Because I assure you, when my phone rings and I see it's one of them, I don't always want to answer the phone. I just don't. <laughs> but the thing is, is I, I, I was taught in Alcoholics Anonymous, that's not an option. We don't screen our phone calls. And I can't tell you how many times women have come to me, some that I don't sponsor, and said, you know what, I was suicidal and I'm so glad you answered your phone. Um, so when we talk about our common welfare, you know, I was taught in Alcoholics Anonymous by giants. Like, I feel blessed beyond measure the people who came before me gave me the gifts of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm super emotional tonight, which I'm usually not emotional. I'm not a crier, and I don't get emotional. But I'm in Norway right now. <laughs> um, Thirty years ago, if you told me I'd be in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in Norway with a bunch of bronze, I would have told you you were crazy. Um, I feel blessed beyond measure, like my cup runneth over on on bad days, right? The problems I have today are luxurious problems. I shouldn't be alive, and I shouldn't be here with you people. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me everything. I know, like, a lot of times when I speak, I got sober really young. I got sober right before my 15th birthday, so my life has been in Alcoholics Anonymous. I can tell you my brain is still alcoholic as ever, right? I'm crazy, um, <clears throat> but I have a life beyond measure because of the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, and who came into the rooms in Alcoholics Anonymous on January 12th of 1992 is not the person who stands here today. And the only reason that I'm here and able to be the human being that I'm able to be um, is because of AA, a God that I do not understand. Um, and people who took a lot of time, right? And so we talk about this concept and idea of our common welfare, and, and to me, it comes down to, like, what I received when I got here. 
And what I received when I got here was a message that kept me coming back. I received hope. And without hope, the alcoholic cannot continue to come back. Um, I don't think there's a right or a wrong way to do AA. Everybody does it different, right? Like some people, they do worksheets. Some people, they're rigid and they're in the book beating people up with it. You know, like there's just so many ways to do Alcoholics Anonymous. To me, when it comes down to our common welfare, it's what it's how we greet that new person. And since I've been here, I've been greeted with so much love and grace, and I've had so much fun. I want to take my my new Norwegian friends home with me. I keep inviting, come to my house. You can stay in my house. Um, so anybody who wants to come to the United States and Wilmington, North Carolina, I have an extra bedroom. Overflow can go to my dear friend Angie that came here with me. Um, you know, and like I have friends that she has a daughter. She has a 10-year-old daughter and husband and a big wife. And she took time out of her life to come here with me. Who I was when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous is I took this girl to a party. And, and nobody there liked the girl. And my brother passed around a hat and people were throwing money in it. And my friend came up to me, who I brought to the party, to ask me a question. And when I turned around, I knocked her out. I, knocked her out. I hit her so hard that she flew across the room and, and split open her eye. And um, that was one of my big amends. I couldn't find that girl once I got sober. And um, the amends that I, I made to that girl, it was crazy. Because it wasn't about me being able to make the amends. What happened in that conversation is she received freedom. And the freedom was that she didn't understand what she did. All those years she was wondering, what did I do? Why was she so upset with me? And it had nothing to do with her, right? And when I made those amends, you know, she just cried and she said, I'm just so glad I didn't do anything. That girl later invited me to her house to meet her daughter. This is like 15, 20 years later. It was very inconvenient for me to stop by her house in Louisiana going from Texas to North Carolina. But she invited me and I got to stop and like have like pie, whatever we did, right? We just hung out and she told me about her life. I can tell you who and what I am is if you did something like that to me, I'd slice your tires and burn your house down. You know, like that's the type of human being I am at my core. And so I'm going to share with you in a general way, and I think it's important that we share in a general way because my experience is not like everybody in this room, right? Um, but, but for me, when I went to meetings in the beginning, it was so important for me to understand and identify. And there was lots of things I didn't identify with you people when I got here. 99% of it I didn't identify because y'all were sober, I wasn't. Y'all were really old too, and I wasn't. <laughs> I know, everybody's old when you're 14, but, um, you know, so so it was really important for me to understand and hear the emotions and, and to be like, do I belong here or not? Um, and, and I did, right? Like, I did identify. Um, but I, I grew up in Texas, right outside of the Dallas area, and I have an older brother, uh, a younger half-sister. I don't talk about her a lot because we just didn't grow up together. My brother and I, we were thick as thieves. He's a year older than me. And I didn't have any friends growing up. Um, I felt very insecure as a kid. And I hated my red hair. I know everybody will be like, oh my God, you have beautiful hair. 
I believe I have beautiful hair today. I love my hair, and of the things about me, I will always say, my hair looks great. I love my hair. I was blessed with great hair. I did not think that when I was three, four, five, six. I used to wrap my little fingers and rip it out of my head because um, I hated it. And that was the exterior thing that made me think that that's why I was different. It was about my hair. But the bottom line is, if I had dyed my hair blonde, they had let me do that. They didn't. But had that happened, I still would have had that feeling. And then I would have been really lost. You know, I just thought that was the thing that separated me. So it just felt like weird. I had this curly red hair, and I just felt awkward all the time growing up. And so my brother was like, my, I was a tomboy. I did everything that he did. Him and his friends would beat me up. I mean, I, like... I was just a tomboy, and I ran around with him. Um, my mom was an alcoholic, active alcoholic growing up, so she was never around. She was my idol. Of course she was my idol. She was a bartender at a little Irish pub, and, um, and when she would walk in, everybody would be like, Barb's here, you know, like she was the party girl. And my memories as a child um, with my mom, our good times, is my mom would get drunk, and then we would go to the like they have these malls and they have these fountains with water that they're there for display but what we would do is we would go dance in them because mom's drunk and we just thought it was so much fun like mom was so much fun right so I loved being with mom but mom would never show up mom would forget that she was supposed to pick us up mom wouldn't show up to school so we were living with my father and stepmother and my stepmother is um uh, certifiable, like she has multiple personality disorder, I don't know what her problem is, but she was very abusive and very um, just insane, it was like living with a crazy person, one minute everything would be okay and the next minute we would be getting beatings or whatever would happen, there was just a lot of, of terrible abuse that happened in that house and my father was never around because he was drinking and doing his thing. All of these things, man, even in sobriety, I thought like they're the root of the problem. What I know today is that all that stuff did was got me primed and ready for my first drink. It has nothing to do with my alcoholism. If I'd grown up in a perfect picture, perfect home, I was still who I was. And whenever alcohol gets into this girl's body, something shifts. <laughs> and that result would have been the same. Um, and so when we were eight years old, my brother and I ran away. And that's how bad it was living in the house. I think about those things now. Like I have nephews and I've watched them grow up. And, and there's a sadness to that, you know, of thinking about um, what it was like as a kid and seeing these little boys and being like, God, I can't believe that's what I was doing when I was eight. But we run away. And, and inevitably, we end up going to live with my grandparents. But there was a short period of time that I was with my mom. And during that time is when I had my first drink. I was eight years old. My mom got upset with the guy that she was with. We got in the car. And my job was always to cheer mom up. And I had these silly things I would do to make her laugh. And she went and she got a six-pack and she handed me a beer. Now, I was super excited about this because I also in that early age time period, no matter where I was at, I wanted to be somewhere else. I would see kids on TV getting kidnapped, and I'm like, why doesn't anybody kidnap me, right? Like, it didn't matter where it was. I just wanted my situation to change. And so the place, if you asked me when I was a kid, where do you want to go? It was Bentley's all day long. That was the bar that my mom ran, and it was like dingy, nasty, dark, 
you'd walk across it and your feet would stick as you'd walk, right? Like gross. Not like urine. It was super nasty. I loved that place. And my aspiration was to be a bartender. And um, and so I knew that everybody went there to drink and everybody seemed so happy. And, and so when she handed me that beer, I was like, I've arrived. I'm eight years old. My head barely clears the, the window in the car and I'm holding the beer up because I want everybody to see that I have arrived, right? Like, I was so excited about this. Now, I wasn't, I didn't get like totally drunk. I remember we went to Bentley's that night. That's about all I remember. But it was my first drink and um, the first time I got drunk was with my brother. He had a friend over. Again, I was super weird and awkward, but I thought his friend was cute. And we, I don't even know why we were looking for liquor, but we found a bottle of liquor. My grandparents did not drink. The only reason that they had that bottle was in case Grandma got sick, Grandpa would make her a hot toddy. So we got the stool. I remember everything about that night, and that was something that I also loved later when I was drinking was like, it was the pre-party to the party to the party after, right? Like it was the adrenaline rush, I'm doing something I'm not supposed to be doing. I liked all of that. If I was doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing, I was an adrenaline junkie. I loved that stuff, you know? And so I remember getting to school and climbing up there, grabbing that bottle of whiskey. There was also some orange triple sec. I couldn't eat oranges for years. Um, even into sobriety. I said, if it was orange flavor, forget it. Um, orange juice, nothing. So up we went. And I don't know how we knew how to play quarters, but we just inherently knew how to play quarters and off we went. Um, that first shot of whiskey, when it hit the back of my throat, it was like fire. And I felt that burn all the way down my esophagus. And when it hit the pit of my stomach, everything went warm and cozy. And I felt like I could breathe for the first time in my life. I'm just one of those people. If I like something, give me more. And that night, what ended up happening, they spared me $20. I couldn't finish off the drink. And, you know, I turned it up. And, you know, say I had alcohol poisoning. I was 10, right? I hadn't eaten anything. And... I essentially drank close to a fifth of liquor. Um, I was, I became violently ill. I was um, very, very sick. But the magic happened. I mean, I loved the feeling of that. But what I loved more is I remember laying on the couch and everything was spinning. And it happened so fast. Everything was spinning. And my brother was saying these terrible things to me. And I could hear them in my ears, but I didn't hear them in my heart. That was the power of alcohol for me. It didn't matter what you thought about me. It didn't matter who you were. People that I loved the most could think the worst things about me, and I was perfectly content and okay. That was powerful. And that became my higher power. That became my everything. And it wasn't like this conscious thought, like, I've solved the world's problem. But that is 100% how I felt. Um, and so, like, what happened that night... And, and I talk about this night in description because every drink from that time until the time I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, this was a resemblance. And this is what I call partying, okay? Um, I proceeded to punch the boy that I had a crush on. I um, left my DNA all over the house. I fell down the stairs myself. I wet my pants. And that was a party, right? Like, the thing is, it didn't matter what kind of consequence or whatever because what happened is, I felt like a human being. I felt like I mattered and I felt okay in my own skin. 
I had never felt that way before in my life. And alcohol gave me this ability to just be okay and to feel like a normal person. I, I had never felt that way. And so, um, you know, I didn't become a daily drinker at the age of 10. But I will tell you, that night they called two places because I had, I had alcohol poisoning. I was vomiting blood. I was very sick. They called two places. They called Alcoholics Anonymous, which I always find hysterical. Um, and then they called my uncle. And my uncle was the cool guy that had a Harley Davidson, always had a beer in his hand. They knew he would know what to do with me. Now, I'll go ahead and I'm going to fast forward a little bit so that you understand the impact of, of that man because I, sometimes I forget to tell it. Um, when I got sober, I was about six months sober. And what happened for me is when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was at zero. I didn't have any pride. I didn't have any self-esteem. Everything was gone. I was at zero. So I started doing these things. Well, what happened for me is that about 90 days in, 60 days, 90 days, my ego returned. And what that looks like for this alcoholic is you're not that bad. You're not like them. You haven't ever gotten a DUI. What about when you get married? I start all of these reservations, start running around in my head. And I didn't really share these openly. What these? Some of them I did. Like the, you know, I didn't get a DUI. I did share that because they informed me I didn't have a car or driver's license, and that was important to get one of those. And um, but, but a lot of those, like what about my wedding, stuff like that. I didn't talk about that stuff. I didn't realize it was a reservation. I didn't really understand any of that. But I was six months sober, and I came home. And these reservations had started popping up here and there. Because life got good quick, right? Remove alcohol from my life and the destruction that I was living in, my life started to get better. But at six months sober, I came home and everybody was at the house and my aunt and uncle had gotten in a huge fight and they got in a fight about his drinking. And when she came out of their bedroom, the phone book was opened up to treatment centers. And... um after about a week, he, she, he, she didn't hear anything, so she sent people looking for him. And they found him behind the house, and he shot himself with a shotgun. And everybody was coming over to tell me that he had died. And they were sitting around the table, and they were talking about whether or not he was going to go to heaven or hell because he had committed this mortal sin, which I think is really interesting because my family never went to church. I don't know where they become like, you know on that topic, but the clearest thought came to my head, and that thought was, he didn't kill himself, he died of alcoholism, because what I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that night is when he pulled the trigger, I knew how he felt, because that's how I felt on January 11th of 1992 when I was completely alone and I couldn't figure out how to kill myself because I wanted to make sure I could never come back again. My alcoholism, no matter what, I may not at 14 have cirrhosis of the liver or have 10 DUIs or have all of these things, but I will always get to a place that it makes sense for me to take my own life, no matter what. That's what alcoholism looks like for this alcoholic. Um, and so, you know, I don't ever want to forget sharing that because it was such a huge part of my first step in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because even though I was coming to these meetings, I was doing the deal, you know, I was doing all this stuff, I was hanging out with these people, to my innermost self, that is when I understood my alcoholism. And so, um, and the last thing I said to my uncle the last time I saw him was I said, you should come to a meeting with me. He was on his bike and he had a beer in his hand and he was riding off. Um, 
And so, like, again, I didn't become an alcoholic at, like, 10, right? But I can tell you I made a solution to my life. And I am defiant by nature. I've been sober a while. Let me tell you, if you tell me to do something, I'm going to do the exact opposite to let you know that I can do it and do it better that way, right? Like, that's just by nature who I am. And um, so add to the fact that I have no principles in my life, no nothing, and alcohol is my master. I did whatever I needed to to get what I needed to. Um, I never had an issue getting alcohol, being underage. It, it just wasn't an issue for me. Um, I lived in a big metropolitan city. We just sit outside the liquor store and give somebody money to go in and buy us liquor. It just wasn't an issue. I like to stock up, get half gallon jugs of vodka, and that's essentially what my life became, is figuring out what party, where we were going to go. And I can tell you that it started out wanting to be social. But the bottom line is what my drinking looks like is I end up alone. And I drink alone. I drink first thing in the morning till the last time before I close my eyes and I pass out. All day, every day, as often as I can. Um, my first rehab was when I was in thir- when I was 13. Um, and I just thought they were being so dramatic, right? Like, <laughs> I didn't understand why my um, why they wouldn't leave me alone. Because if they understood me, they would just let me be. And what I learned in that rehab is drugs are bad, just say no. Because in my mind, I could understand that like drugs are illegal. There was a whole campaign in the United States, just say no, Nancy Reagan, like it was a big thing. So like that made sense to me. I don't know where in my mind that I thought somehow it was legal for a 13-year-old to be drinking their face off every single day, but it was different, right? There's different rules for alcoholics, right? Like there's always a different exception for myself, and um, the rules don't apply to me. And so that's what I thought, because I thought that they were crazy. Now, by this time, I'm 13 years old. I have an 18-year-old boyfriend, which, you know, the family was really excited about that, too. Um... But we were in love, right? And we were going to get married, and he was, you know, oh my God, he was a total loser. Um, but like at the time, you know, right? Like I just think this guy's great, and I was obsessed. And um, and I'm I'm hanging out with people who are 10, 15, 20 years older than me. And and what progressed into happening prior to me coming to Alcoholics Anonymous is these people. I referred to them as my friends. I now refer to them as pedophiles because that's what they were, right? Because what my drinking looks like is that I have no moral compass whatsoever. It doesn't matter what kind of upbringing that I've had. Um, not that the first eight years were great, but my grandparents were some of the most wonderful human beings. Like, they lived by principles that we like have to work at every day, right? Like They just naturally were good human beings. Um, and and they taught me to work hard. They taught me all of these things. That stuff, I didn't. I just thought, why does he ask me how my day is? This is a man that it wasn't his responsibility to care for me. I was so selfish and self-centered that he asked me how my day was, and I would get so mad, and I would storm to the back of the house and slam the door. Right? Like, um, I hated him, and I hated everybody. And and what my drinking turned into was just this place that essentially most of my drinking happened alone. I became isolated to an extent that, you know, I took that physically as well. I shaved half my head, combat boots, you know, like black lips, black eyes. I didn't look like this when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I was an unlovely creature, as I like to say. Uh, but that's just where it took me, right? And 
Um, and I think about those things because I see young girls sometimes come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's rare, you know, to see like a 14 or 15 year old. But when it when it happens, I look at them and I think they're a child. But I was living my life like a 30 year old woman. I was drinking daily. I had bleeding ulcers. I was emaciated because I didn't eat food. I didn't need food. I had vodka, you know. And the the stronger the alcohol, the better. Everclear was a big thing in Texas, and so. Again, it, it wasn't about the taste. It was about what's going to get me wherever I need to go as fast as I can get there. Because I don't like the way that I feel. And alcohol gave me the ability. And, and had it continued to work for me, I would not be here. I'd be drinking my face off. You know? I loved that feeling. But the end for me is that alcohol no longer works. And I felt like I was going to come out of my skin. I felt like a raw nerve every single day of my life. And no matter how much I drank, I couldn't get drunk and I could not get to that place that I felt okay. I felt angry, irritable, breathless, discontent. Like, I just wanted to set everything on fire. And by this time, I'm also a very violent human being. Like, if I was sober, I was violent. If I was drunk, I was gonna drink myself so like stupid drunk that like I wouldn't engage with you. But if I was sober and you hurt my feelings, I'd beat you up. That was just how I responded. Um, and at this time, too, like my brother, who him and I were like thick as seeds, we didn't run around together. He just thought I was, you know, he still looks at me like I'm still that same person. But, um, which is kind of funny, but um, he also likes to drink a lot. So, um, you know, I just, I just got to this place of complete isolation. I didn't have friends. I didn't connect with anybody in my family and um and and that's what the end looked like because I got to this place of desperation and I remember sitting in my room that night and 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 for me the ultimate desperation is if I'm willing to pray and that's true today right like I call my sponsor and she's like well did you pray about it I'm like that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard you know like can we talk about the 20 other things that we need to do to resolve this problem I don't like my solution to be prayer I never have. Even today, don't like it. I know that it's the truth. I know that my higher power is the thing that connects me and gives me the ability to be who and what I am, but I still don't want it to be my solution. And on January 11th of 1992, when I was sitting there, I was so desperate that I prayed. But my prayer was not for help. I didn't want help. I knew that the world would be better off, and I can tell you that today, Based upon the way I lived my life, the things that I did to the human beings in my life, um, the world would have been better off with how I lived my life for me to be gone. That was the truth. It wasn't like this overindulgent, self-pitying thing. It was the truth. I was a terrible human. Um, thankfully, I believe my higher power did not want that. Because what happened is, is at some point in time I passed out because I couldn't figure out. I'd cut my wrist before I'd taken bottles of pills before. And I think a lot of that was a very dramatic thing that I did too. Um, this was different. And I've never felt to this date in my sobriety the way that I felt that night. Um, but the next morning, apparently, I woke up and I got a phone call from this girl who I'd been in rehab with. And her name was Abby. And Abby was the first girlfriend I'd ever met. 
like we met in rehab and rehab was super fun um like it was just a bunch of derelicts like me you know like we just got in trouble or whatever and we ran around and i met this girl and we connected and it was the first girlfriend i'd ever really had and so when we got out of rehab she was trying to do this sober thing and i was like eh, you know not me um and she would carry these little chips around and and i was a nice friend and what i would do is i would set up shot glasses and i'd fill them up with water for her because i was a good friend i like in bill's story when he talks about that um and so uh three months prior to me receiving that phone call she said i'm not going to continue to watch you kill yourself and not once did i think to myself maybe i should not drink i didn't think i was an alcoholic on January 12th of 1992, when I walked into that meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't think that I was an alcoholic. I thought that there was something broken within me and that there was something inherently wrong with me as a human being. Alcohol was not the problem. And I would have defended that till the day that I died, right? Because it was my only solution that I'd ever experienced. But I was like, bye, Abby. I didn't, again, I didn't think don't drink or like change some things, control your drinking. Bye. Um, all of y'all who have tried controlling your drinking, I'm sorry. That seems real painful to me, right? It was not my experience. Every time I drank, I drank to get drunk. And that is a big reason why I thought I was not an alcoholic. I'm not powerless. I meant to get drunk. Like, that was my solution, you know? Every time, I meant to get drunk. When I got sober, I remember um, I went to this, I was in this wedding, and I, and I had this thought that I would look really pretty with a glass of champagne. And, you know, because everybody was having champagne and we had these Vera Wang gowns. It was like, you know, very hoity-toity. And um, and I see these girls and they have their glass of champagne. And I was like, I would look really pretty with a glass of champagne. You know, and so I, I do the, what I'm supposed to and I pick up the phone and I tell my sponsor. And and she said, huh, why, why do you think you, what would a glass of champagne do for you? And I was like, nothing. I didn't want a glass of champagne. I wanted to change the way that I felt. And that's not a glass of champagne because what would have happened, that Vera Wayne dress would have been tied around my waist and I would have been hitting on the groom, you know? Because it would have been a bottle of vodka. It wouldn't have been a glass of champagne. But my alcoholism likes to dress it up really pretty. Um, not ever have I thought a glass of anything sounds good. I want to feel better. Um, and that's just what my alcoholism looks like. And so... January 12th, she calls me and she, she asked me how I'm doing and asked me if I wanted to go to a meeting. No. Right? I did not want to go to a meeting. But something inside me was like, go. I was so miserable. And this is why I believe that pitiful and comprehensible demoralization, that space that I had to get to, that pain that I had to get to, had to be a place that was so lonely and empty that my ego was gone and my pride was gone. Everything was gone. Otherwise, I'm not willing. Because if I don't have a pl- if I have a plan, I don't need you. But when I no longer have a plan and my cards are at zero, I have a little bit more willingness. So I went to that meeting and I walked into the Back Basics group in Arlington, Texas, and it was a bunch of like 900-year-old people, and they had been sober since God, old as dirt, right? Like I knew, very charming that I was, half my head shaped, combat boots, like. I couldn't say a sentence without using the F word at least four or five times. Now, outside of a meeting, you might find that still to be true, but <clears throat> in a meeting, I can actually go the whole time. Um, 
But I was an unlovely human being, and I walk into this meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was not greeted with, I spilt more than you drank and you don't belong here. I wasn't treated like I was a kid. What I was treated with was respect. And I was in a place in my life that I didn't have any for myself, much less think that I deserved it. They didn't tell me, like, the coffee's over there. They got me a cup of coffee and they brought it over to me. What I experienced that night is what I believe our common welfare becomes about, is that that newcomer is important. Our first impression on that new alcoholic is so important. I didn't keep coming back because I thought I was an alcoholic and I needed help. I received love and kindness and hope in a moment of kindness from people I'd never met before. And there was something endearing enough about that that it kept me coming back. I hadn't gone through the steps. I hadn't identified my alcoholism. I hadn't admitted to my innermost self. I didn't even think I needed to be there. I cried the entire meeting, and at the end, they gave me their phone numbers, and they said, we don't care if it's 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. If you need help, you call us. Because there was a price for everything in the world that I was living in. I knew because I'd paid it. And I kept thinking, like, these old men are going to ask for something. They keep telling me they love me, you know? Like, I just knew, like, something was up. Again, my experience is that those old men were nothing but my biggest cheerleaders, respectful, um, and they took me under their wing. And they showed me Alcoholics Anonymous, by the way, they, they lived their lives. I'll forever be grateful. I know some people haven't had that experience, but that's what my experience was. That's the experience that I try to pass on as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous today, is to remember what I say here tonight in my talk, you know, my ego is like, I want to be like great and I want to be funny and all of these things. I had a sponsor that said, you know what, Jennifer, your job is to get up and share your experience, strength, and hope. You're not there to entertain people. We don't entertain an Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, granted, I get there's some people that are super entertaining. Sometimes I can um my job is to ask my higher power to come into my heart and share whatever message is that needs to be spoken. Um, I don't remember one thing that I heard in my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know what I remember? How they treated me. I was not lovable. And they loved me. They loved me just because I was a broken human. They clapped for me when I got my chip. Only in Alcoholics Anonymous are we like at our worst and we're all like, that's great, right? Like, what is this that we're a part of? But I can tell you that the rest of my sobriety was just like that. I have giants in Alcoholics Anonymous that have built me up year after year after year. And I'm sober a really long time and I still have giants that are my biggest cheerleaders. I never had a dad that was like the kind of dad that in my mind I envisioned that we're supposed to have. I never had a mom until about, I don't know, 12 years ago. My mom's 19, 18 years, 19 years? 19 years sober. And, or maybe she's 18 years sober. We were talking about this earlier. She's been sober a little bit. She was sober a while before she learned how to be a mom. Twelve years ago, my mom started showing up. But I can tell you, do you know how many men and women have come into this alcoholic's life and changed my life and loved me like I was their own child? God gives me what I need. 
right? It may not be in the form that I always thought that it was supposed to be in. When I bought my first house, I remember buying my first house and I just thought, I was so excited. And I wouldn't allow myself to get excited until I had those keys and I was sitting outside that house. I had a migraine the entire week. I went and started packing. My realtor called me and was like, have you started packing? I'm like, nope. Because I can't get excited about something that might not happen, right? I hit the keys and I'm sitting there. No one in my family even really acknowledged that, right? But my AA people, they were sending plants, they bought me a grill, they were like doing all of these things. So my experience is, is that, you know, the way that I viewed relationships, the way that I saw things was from this selfish, self-centered place. I was so angry for years at my father. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was seven years sober and I was still laying in bed fantasizing, like I would get so excited, fantasizing about beating my stepmother with my bare hands. Right? And I would just think, I can't wait till my dad's on his deathbed because I want him to be alone and feel the loneliness that I felt and the rejection that I felt. To my innermost self, 100%, I felt that way. Who I am today is the only child that my, that, that talks to my father. I call him on a regular basis. Because what happened through the process of the transition that happened in the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, it happened over the course of, you know, 30 years, right? I was seven years sober having homicidal thoughts about people still, right? Where there is great pain, my experience is, is it takes a lot of work. I wrote a lot of inventory over a lot of years to get to a place that I was willing to pray for willingness to have understanding. Because I have plenty of reasons to be justifiably anger about things that happened as a child. Right? Um, justifiable anger does not work for me, though. Because I'm the one who's going to die from it. It tells me in my literature, it doesn't say, like, Getting in a relationship your first year is going to be the death of you. It doesn't say, like, it doesn't say any of that. What it says is resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. And I was resentful because resentment is a reoccurring emotion. And when you're laying in bed having homicidal thoughts about somebody, I'm just going to say there's probably a resentment there, right? Um, and so, like, I had to do a lot of work. I say that to say that um, it didn't happen overnight for me. And I'm not in a place like things will come up today and I'm like, I thought I worked through that. Right? But like, whether it's like, I've been dishonest about stupid things lately. Like, what is that about? Right? My alcoholism is alive and well. I can't stay sober today on what I did yesterday for my recovery. I realized through the process of my recovery that not only do I need the steps, I need the traditions, and I need the concepts, our three legacies, I can't just do service work. I got super active in service work um, when I moved to North Carolina, and but I was destroying people's lives. I was like a tornado just roaring through. I was also in my early 20s, right? Like I was doing a lot of things that you guys got to blame on your drinking, but I was sober. You know, my worst inventory was 10 years sober. It wasn't, you know, my first inventory I ever did. I did a lot of things in, in my recovery, some based upon my age, but some just based upon selfishness and self-centeredness, because that's the root of my problem and the way that I view life. Um, 
So when I, you know, when I came in and I started working these steps and I started doing this deal, my life started to change. They told me stay out of a relationship your first year. I don't tell the women I sponsor to do that because none of them listen. What I encourage them to do is to get halfway through their ninth step. And once they start repairing the lives that they've torn apart, they can start tearing apart more people's lives, right? Like, at least know what you're doing when you're doing it. And um, no matter what I've gone through in my recovery, I haven't had to drink over that. And like on the 365th day, I met this guy and I ended up marrying him. And I know it's going to be shocking, but we're not married today. But um, nonetheless, it's the reason I ended up in North Carolina. So... I, I go through the steps, I'm doing the deal, my old timers are my people, and I meet this guy, and I go through high school. I went through high school, all of that stuff sober, right? I didn't know how to talk to people my own age. I hung out with senior citizens and played Pictionary on Friday night. That's what my life looked like. I was not a cool kid in high school. I didn't talk to anybody. I went to school to actually go to school, and because um, I was sober. But my life started to change, and, and I, I moved to North Carolina. When I moved there, I thought, oh, my God, these poor people are going to get drunk because they don't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous because how we do it in Texas is the right way. And I got to this dark place. I was like, this is terrible. I was judging everybody. And I heard somebody told me, you need to go hear this speaker tonight. I was like, whatever. So I go, and I hear this speaker. And... um one of my giants, um, and he, he recently passed away. Um, he's an amazing human, and he changed my life. He saved my life that day. Because I was like at that place. I, I was sober a while, but I moved this place, and I hated everybody. I was three and a half years sober, and I was no longer like the baby of AA. Nobody knew me or cared who I was, right? I didn't know any of the people when I walked in the room. And this guy got up and he shared a message that was so powerful. And he talked about, if I'm in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm not hearing the message that I want to hear, I have a responsibility to the people who shared their message with me to give back what was so freely given to me. And he shared so passionately about Alcoholics Anonymous. And he made me miss my old timers. He made my heart miss Alcoholics Anonymous. He also got sober when he was really young. He was 24 when he got sober. But back then, that was like getting sober when you were 14, right? Like, he was one of the youngest people in our state for a really long time. And, and his message was just powerful. And I went up and I talked to him afterwards. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go to a conference. And so I found this flyer and I went to this young people's conference. Um, I'd never been to a young people's conference. I hung out with senior citizens, okay? Like, I loved 80-year-old people. That's who I hung out with. That was my comfort zone. I didn't know how to talk to people my own age. That's why I didn't do anything in high school. Like, I went to school, left, right? Like, I didn't know how to relate to people my own age. And um, I go to this young people's conference. I'm 18 years old, and I walk into this room of just, how many people here have been to a young people's conference? So I walk into this conference of this electricity that you just can't even imagine. Total inappropriate things, hooting and hollering and yelling and just this energy. And I was like, these are my people, right? Like, I remember they did all kinds of stuff that week and they got in trouble. I remember delegates down the area would always talk about it and bring it up. And I'm like, oh my God. I know that stuff happens in big people AA too, but whatever. 
So I go to this conference. I get like totally involved in young people's that night. I'd never met these people. We started a young people's meeting back in Wilmington where I lived and we started going to conferences every weekend. Literally, I'd be like, if I was at a job and they told me I couldn't go, I'd be like, I need to quit. Like, I lived my life to, like, be involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I just found this, like, love. And, and I'll tell you that service became such a huge part of my life. And during that time, I went through a divorce and, um, you know, and then I was just doing highly inappropriate things for the next, I don't know, probably three to five years. Five. Four. Four years. Um, I, and I still did inappropriate things after that, but those four years were really condensed, you know? Um, and, but I also had some of the best time in my life. I met people that are still a huge part of my life. And I got involved in service and I was just on fire for Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'll tell you, I love AA more today than I ever have. And you may love AA, but you don't love it as much as I do. You can love it equally, but you don't love it more than I do. And the reason why is because through this process of getting involved in service, when we talk about our common welfare and that unity, what that means is that A is more important than me. Nothing in my life has ever been more important than me. I'm selfish and self-centered. Do you know who I am? Right? But my decisions today and through the last 20 years if I'm presented with something that's going to affect Alcoholics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous always wins. My great idea gets pushed to the side. And I've learned that by being with these crazy erratic young people and being on these crazy committees and talking about all this crazy stuff. And what that did was prepare me for general service because this boy that I had a crush on told me I should be a GSR. I didn't get involved in general service because of I wanted to be a good trusted servant. Y'all have me messed up with the wrong person because who I am is selfish and self-centered. Like my motive, but that's the beautiful thing about Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't have to have good motives to get the rewards of the grace of higher power and AA following those principles. And so like I got super involved. I'm doing all this young people stuff. I'm also, you know, I have a boyfriend in every state in the United States and traveling the world and, um, and I get to this place where I wanted to go to bed and never wake up again. I didn't take a drink. I hadn't planned killing myself yet. And I say all of those things yet. But what my experience is, is keep coming back, it's going to get better, is not true for me. I can't just show up to meetings. I have this thing called real alcoholism because... When I start living basically the opposite of the nights that promises, I'm in the bedevilment. And when I'm in the bedevilment, they're actually talking about a drunk person. I remember the sponsor reading this stuff, and I realized they're talking about a drunk person, and all of them were check, check, check. What happened was, was I wasn't actively writing inventory, and I heard this insane woman at a meeting, and she was talking about writing inventory on her dog, and I was like, this chick's crazy, and I asked her to be my sponsor. And... um and it changed my life because that relationship with my father started to shift. That's when I started writing letters to my father on a regular basis. I didn't want to write the letters. I don't ever want to pray either. I don't ever want to do the work, right? I want all the results. I want all the glory, but none of the work I want to do. But I did the work because what I know to be true is that 
My old timers taught me the greatest lesson when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. They said, we don't care how you feel, we care what you do. You don't have to feel like being in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous to actually do it. You can feel not like not being here and actually physically be here. So how I feel is irrelevant to what I do. I wrote the cards. Every month I was consistent. And then I started making phone calls after a year and a half. And during that time, I... I went through a lot of stuff. I went through a lot of health problems, and um, and I ended up having to have an open heart surgery when I was 26 years old. And I called my father to tell him, and he said, "I'll be there." I remember thinking, "He's not going to be here," um, and he was. And what happened when he came in town, and I went to have that surgery? Not only did I get to make verbal face-to-face amends, like it helped me direct amends to my father, but there were amends made by y'all because what my dad called was life. His life he didn't know that I had. And for the first time, I looked my dad in his eyes and I said, I was wrong for the daughter that I was to you and you deserve a better daughter. And I meant that 100% with every fiber of my being. I would go home and my dad would know that I was there and I wouldn't even call him. I don't have a kid, but when my dog doesn't greet me the way that I think she should, I get my, my feelings hurt. I can't imagine what that feels like for a parent to be ignored by your child, regardless of what happened growing up, right? I was a 20-something-year-old adult acting like an 8-year-old child. My old timers taught me about learning to be a participant in relationships based upon what my God wanted in my life, not based upon this idea, you didn't do me right, so I'm not going to do you right, right? Like, that's just the course of how I lived my life. I started becoming responsible for my actions and engaging with people based upon what I believe my higher power would want for me. And um, at the hospital, when I woke up, <laughs> the nurse was like, who are you? I was like, what do you mean, ma'am? I hope you know who I am. You got my chart. But um, she said, are you, are you like famous? Who are you? And I said, I said, no. She said, people have been calling here from all over the United States to check on you. And she said, there's a lobby of people out there. So what my dad experienced was alcoholic phenomenon. Y'all helped me make those men. Because you, you show up. Even when we don't want people to show up, we show up. I don't care. My friend is hurting. I will be there. And and I learned how to do that. Like people who know me know, like I show up one hundred percent. Because I have never not been shown up for an alcoholic anonymous. In every area of my life I have been failed. But in here I have not. But that's a direct result of actions that I also take. That stuff just doesn't happen. So during that time, you know, when I got active in that step work, my life started to change and I, I, and I learned how to um, be the person that my God intended for me to be. I stopped hurting God's kids. I stopped living selfishly and using people to please myself. I learned how to be what God intended me to be. I'm not capable of that, y'all. I don't know if y'all know this, but if you cut me off in traffic, I'm ready to, like, kill you. You know, like, that's where my head goes. You hurt somebody I love, I want to murder you. You know, like, I just, that's who and what I am. But I saw these examples in Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember in my first home group, this guy, 
he always tried to set me up with his with his son because his son was like 15, you know, I was 15, whatever, by that time. And he came home from work one day, and when he opened the door, his his wife and his daughter had been murdered, and they had been murdered by his son. I watched this man continue to show up in Alcoholics Anonymous. I watched this man months later say to me, I hired an attorney for my son because I know that's what my wife would have wanted. I assure you that if somebody hurt my family, that's not going to be my natural response. But what I saw was God's grace working in this man's life because it's not who he was to his core without the help of a higher power. Who I am to my core is I will lie to you, steal from you, help you look for it, and sleep with your husband. That's who and what I am to my core without the grace of God, 12 Steps, and Alcoholics Anonymous in my life. When I got here, I was a terrible friend. What happened through the course of the, of the, I mean, today I wake up and I want to please God. That is weird to me. It's just weird. Because it's just not what my brain naturally thinks. What happened through the transformation could not have happened if I didn't show up and do that work. If I didn't have people who pushed me and cheered for me and helped me walk through that. So I feel completely blessed beyond measure that the old timers that were here before me, what they gave me, what they taught me, and they continued to teach me. Um, I, I later went on and got super involved in, in general service. I later became a delegate and um, I got to serve at the general service conference and be a part of Alcoholics Anonymous history. You know, like, now what I'll say about that is when I was 18, 19, going to these assemblies, I'd be like, I'm going to be the youngest delegate from our area. That's what I would say. What happened is, when I was elected delegate, the old-timers reminded me of me saying that, and I was so ashamed that I even would utter those words out of my mouth. Because I was so humbled by the fact that the fellowship had elected me to do such a thing. Like, I felt so... I, re- I physically got sick before I went to my first general service conference meeting because I just felt so humbled by the fact that I got to be amongst um, our fellowship and participate in a way that most of our members don't ever get to. So what happened is, like, my ego is this huge, big, beautiful thing. You know, I'm a big deal. And, and, and what happens is I then get to this place of complete humility. It's not a natural thing. I never would have thought that I feel compassion and sadness for my father, for the human being that he is. But I do. I don't feel anger towards them. I feel really sad. I feel sad he doesn't have a life like I get to have. I don't know how that happens. It doesn't translate. So if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous and you think this thing may not work for you, I get it. I didn't think it would work for me either. It doesn't make any sense. Like, go to meetings, call somebody. Like, how's that going to make my life better? I don't know. It doesn't make sense today when I say it out loud verbally. But I can tell you 100% flawlessly Alcoholics Anonymous works. It works when I do the things that are suggested. In spite of the fact that I don't want to, I just do it and my life changes. I really was going to talk a lot about service tonight and I was going to talk a lot about my experiences. In the United States, you know, you don't talk twice in the same weekend. 
Um, but I like this. I'm going to try to get everybody to do it back home because I'm like, we're going to let me talk for like another hour tomorrow. This is great. Um, because I like talking about me and um, I'm my favorite topic. Um, but you know, I felt really emotional. And, and, and again, like that comes from this place of just feeling like unworthy and grateful. Right? Like I am overwhelmed. Like I can't believe this is my life. When I was going to get on the plane to come here, I was tearing up, and I'm like, how does this my life? Assuming what I am should never be here. I shouldn't be living this life. I shouldn't have the freedom in my heart that I have. Because I'm a person who doesn't think I'm worthy. I'm a person who's not enough. I'm a person who, if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't like me. And what happened is I lived this big, beautiful life. And I'm surrounded by people who are like, we know exactly who and what you are and we love you. <laughs> right? Like, I get to surround myself with weirdos just like myself. And I remember thinking when I was early on in recovery, being embarrassed to go to dinner with these people from AA because it was like the little yellow bus just dropped everybody off. And I was like, oh, my God, I hope nobody ever sees me. Right? Like, I was totally embarrassed. Those are my people. You guys are my people. Because when I talk about that inability to connect and that today, I'm not like this great human being. God gives me the ability to be like this great human being. I don't give good AA talks. God gives. And so I get to blame the bad ones on him too. Because I'm like, that was him. I prayed. I did my, I did my part. Um, you know, like I, I don't, I don't get to live this life or do these things without God's grace. And sometimes God's grace is in you people. And hopefully I'll talk a little bit more tomorrow about um, some of my um, struggles with this higher power in my life. Because I'll tell you that's been the greatest struggle of my sobriety. And I've done all kinds of crazy stuff seeking God. Um, but I can tell you that I believe my God believes that I should pray with my feet. And that means that I stay in action. I stay in the steps. And I stay involved in service. So I am um, humbled. Um, I'm just honored that you guys invited me to be with y'all this weekend. So I look forward to chatting with y'all and being with y'all all weekend. Thank you.